Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome to America's 360. I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, the Inter-American Development Bank mounted a momentous effort in 2020 to assist its member nations in responding to the economic and social impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. A record $21.6 billion in new financing was committed. In addition to facing the pandemic, the IDB provided aid to countries in Central America and the Caribbean affected by hurricanes Ada and Iota. With the pandemic ongoing and a range of other issues facing the region, the IDB will continue to face both challenges and opportunities in the year ahead, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And to do so, we're thrilled to welcome a very special guest to the America's 360 Roundtable, the president of the Inter-American Development Bank, Mauricio Claver Carone. You'll hear from him in just a minute, but first let's welcome back our regulars. Please say hello to Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gaudet. Hi there, John. Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Glad to be here, John. And Mexico Institute Director Duncan Wood, who will also be moderating today's roundtable. Over to you, Duncan. Welcome back. Thanks, John. Mauricio, first off, congratulations on your election to the presidency of the IDB. It's historic, and it comes at a critical time for the Americas, of course. The pandemic, economic recession, rising indebtedness, governance challenges everywhere, public security, corruption, and of course, a political transition here in the United States. I'd like to talk to you about these challenges, and then perhaps we can uh, move on to talk about some of the opportunities that we see in the region. But let's begin. Why don't we begin with what you see as being the major challenges for the region in 2021, and perhaps uh, you know what the, the role of the IDB is going to be in responding to those challenges, Mauricio. Well, thank you so much, Duncan, again, and thank you for the invitation, and, and not only to be able to tell you a little bit about what we're doing from the Inter-American Development Bank, but also to hear your questions and your comments and really learn from you uh, as well. All of you are diverse experts uh, with years of experience in the region and, and, and obviously have a great pulse on what's happening. Uh, so look forward to, uh, to this being the beginning of uh, many conversations in, in this regard. Um, look, overall, and you, you named uh, some, some of the challenges, and unfortunately, there's, there's more you can add to that list as well. Uh, but, you know, I'd like to say that and kind of contextualize it in that the fact is that Latin America and the Caribbean faces the deepest uh, socioeconomic crisis in the 61-year history of uh, the IDB in that sense. Clearly, we're at a critical juncture, uh, not only uh, due to the COVID pandemic, uh, but, you know, add to that the longstanding structural weaknesses that existed that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. We've seen recent uh, natural disasters, uh, the worst hurricane season in 50 years, uh, the worst migration crisis in the world uh, in regards to uh, Venezuela, uh, with a very poor international response to it, particularly if you compare it to the Syrian uh, crisis with about a tenth of the international attention monetarily than that of the Syrian crisis. Uh, and so, you know, we've seen this huge amplification of the development gaps in the region as a result. Uh, you've all heard the statistics, and I'm not one to you know, get boggled down on, on statistics, but you've all heard, obviously, GDP declined by 8% in 2020, uh, uh, total employment declined by 10%. Uh, what sticks to my head every day are three numbers. You know, you have 25 million people uh, that will be uh, newly unemployed uh, in the region, uh, 44 million people uh, that will be falling into poverty, newly falling into poverty, and 52 million 
that would be exiting the middle class after decades of effort to get them uh, into the middle class. Uh, so it's quite a challenge when you put it all together. And then if you add to that kind of the consequences of what we've seen now uh, in regards to COVID and, and what we like to call the triple sudden stop, you know, the major disruptions in human mobility, trade, and capital flows, and you really have quite a crisis in your hands. Now, I'm a glass half full type of person. And, you know, we can sit here and give you all the diagnostics. Uh, and you've heard it all of why uh, things, you know, we won't recover till 2023 per capita GDP wise of 2025, maybe 2028 in some countries like Mexico. You've heard all of that, you know, but we're really focused on is looking at opportunities. And just this week, we presented to a board uh, what we call Vision 2025. And it really has a positive outlook to it. And we, instead of, you know, calling it and, and falling into the trap of another loss decade, we've actually called this Vision 2025 Reinvest America as a decade of opportunity. Because I really do believe uh, that as a result of the pandemic, there is a decade of the opportunity. And IDB is going to play a big role. You know, this is also why we've been focused on a capital increase, why we've been focusing on the priorities, which I'm sure we'll go more into. And I don't want to just answer everything in one question. But the real opportunities that we see from digitalization to nearshoring to small, medium-sized enterprise growth to really having a business line on climate gender, uh, these are things that we can do to really bring this decade of opportunity to fruition. Uh, but we're going to need resources for that. And unfortunately, we don't have the resources necessary to do that. Last year, as we said in the introduction, was a record year. 2020, we contributed as a group over $21 billion to the region, but that's really a one-off. And we need to make sure that that's sustainable and that we continue to do so because we've assessed uh, through a capital note that we did in the first month of my presidency to the board that the needs of the region are somewhere in the $25 billion per year uh, range. And our lending is really in the 14 to $16 billion in a normal year. Uh, so we're really going to need to really pick it up. Uh, and therefore, obviously, that's why a capital increase is extraordinarily important, but also why we have to be creative. And we're doing a lot of that, which I'd be happy uh, to speak about as well. Fantastic. Um, that's, a, that's a really good way to start. I know that uh, uh, Ben Gadan has a, has a uh, follow-up question on the capital increase for, for the bank. Um, and I'd like to, to come back a little bit later on to focus on the, uh, um, on the, on the question of the opportunities uh, more broadly speaking in the, in the region. But why don't we go over to Ben, first of all, to do the follow-up on, uh, on capital issues. Thanks, Duncan. And thanks again, Mauricio. We've talked about the IDB's robust response to the pandemic in 2020. As you pointed out, it's widely recognized that the IDB needs a lot more capital if it's to play the role the region needs from the IDB to restart economic activity. The IDB's last capitalization was back in 2010, when the bank received an additional $70 billion after a prolonged debate in the United States Congress. So my question is, what's your strategy for a new capitalization? You've talked, I think, persuasively about the need for additional resources, but I'm curious about your approach to the U.S. Congress, and in particular to some key figures in the Senate who were initially concerned about your candidacy to run the bank and who now probably need a bit of persuasion to approve such a large capital increase. That's a great question, Ben. I appreciate it. Look, I mean, it, capital increases have never been easy for the bank. As a matter of fact, I've said that the IDB has been a bipartisan issue in the United States because there's been consensus that neither Democrats or Republicans have ever really stepped up to support the IDB in its history, I would like to say, uh, definitely in its modern history. You know, even that capital increase in 2010, the United States came into it kicking and screaming. And at the end of the day, the Senate at the very end, uh, and, well, the Congress at the very end, uh, particularly because of Republican resistance in Congress, uh, essentially weighed in and then a whole bunch of contingencies were put on it. And, you know, it really hamstrung uh, a lot of what the bank could do. By the way, when the merge out of IDB Invest, which, you know, we're talking about recovery after the COVID pandemic and this recovery, to be real, we can help out, but it really has to be private sector led. Uh, IDB Invest is a wonderful tool, but when the merge out was done in 2015, the United States did not participate 
period. As a matter of fact, our shareholding decreased as well as Japan's and Spain's. And there's some issues there of concern, which we're trying to address moving on in the future. But that was actually, that decrease that took place uh, was actually to create room for China to come into IDB and invest. So you can see the direction things were going there. Uh, and, and I want to make sure we don't miss those opportunities again. So we're actually, for the first time, you know, here I am 100 days into my presidency. And in 100 days into this presidency, we had in the first month, we presented a capital note to the board on the needs of the region. And again, it's common sense. The worst crisis. I mean, if we've had capital increases before, then think about it amidst the worst socioeconomic crisis in the 61 years of the bank. Common sense. COVID, all of those consequences we talked about. Add to that the worst hurricane season in 50 years, with four out of five countries most impacted by hurricanes right here in Central America and the Caribbean. The worst migrant crisis, not only in the history of the Western Hemisphere, but right now currently in the world, whereby the international community has only put forward about $200 per Venezuelan migrant versus you know, over $2,000 for every Syrian migrant. If tomorrow, and I'm, and I'm hopeful and I wish the incoming administration all the success, there's a democratic transition of sorts in Venezuela and there's a reconstruction effort which should be led, uh, frankly, by the IDB, there's no money for it. There frankly is no money for it. As a matter of fact, Venezuela is a billion dollars, nearly a billion dollars in arrears uh, with the bank. So we're talking about widespread needs. And if we get even closer into it, you know, small, medium-sized enterprises, there's an $87 billion gap in, in that regard. If you talk about uh, healthcare, you're talking about another $50 billion gap, digitalization, another $50 billion gap. There are huge gaps of financing in the region for all of these key issues. And I think that the case can be made. Now, I think we're ahead of the game because, one, we presented it from day one. You know, we're looking now when we go to Argentina in March uh, to get some sort of a mandate, either the formal mandate or to have another meeting in order to do so. So that would be at record speed. I think it's never moved in the history of banks so quickly in that regard. You have legislation that was presented on a bipartisan basis by the authorizers. And obviously, the authorizers are key here because most of this money is going to be in callable capital, uh, which goes through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And you have two key senators there, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Menendez, and, and obviously Senator Rubio, a key Republican in regards to the region. And, and the chairman are now ranking of the subcommittee in Western Hemisphere on the authorizing committee to present that. So I think that that's a really good sign. You've never seen you know, the Senate has always in a bipartisan way lagged way behind. Here they are now leading in that effort, and that bill will be introduced with more uh, senators in a bipartisan fashion in the next few weeks. And I think that's also a positive sign. Now, look, the good news is there are more senators in a bipartisan basis that are supportive than are not. And my goal is that even those that are not, and look, I'm frank, clearly the incoming chairman of the Appropriations Committee, Senator Leahy, had uh, issues with my, with my running for the presidency and my being elected. And I respect that. You know, I, I respect his opinion. But I'm sure and I hope he gives us the opportunity to, to really give a good case on the merits of why this is important and for the United States to lead. Because one of the greatest legacies we can live here and, and what I'm focused on in the IDB is not only to leave a new IDB for the new generation in five years, but to leave one that is more robust financially, that has a greater adherence, which I know something Senator Leahy and just about every member cares about, but greater adherence to transparency and compliance standards that have modern 21st century offerings and vehicles for countries in the region. But most importantly, that has a strengthened, renewed U.S. commitment where we can say that U.S. support for the IDB is a bipartisan issue. And if we can do that together with the incoming administration, with the Congress, not only will the United States be better for it because the neighborhood uh, where we live in uh, and our friends and our partners and our neighbors will be stronger, uh, but vice versa. And I think that that's a great thing for everybody. It's a good case to make. Mauricio, thank you. This is Cindy. Um, I have a question about levels of indebtedness and the ratios of, of debt to GDP. 
You've talked about, even before the pandemic, um, the structural problems in the region. Do you think that regional economies are going to recover in a robust way that would allow people to be able to pay these huge loans? And is this something that could become politically contentious as people want governments to spend money on needs at home and not paying back international financial institutions? That's a great question, Cindy. And, you know, just this weekend, I was listening to my friend and colleague and, and who I widely respect, the managing director of the, of the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva, who was saying, you know, the, the number one remedy right now is to keep spending. And once you're done spending, spend some more. Uh, so that's the recipe right now. Uh, that's coming uh, from from the multilateral world. Look, the good news is here we offer a wide variety of products, and we have to be. Now, let me first from the IDB perspective, and kind of from the broader macro perspective. From the IDB perspective, we offer a wide variety of products. So, you know, what I'm talking about when we when we discuss twenty billion dollars per year is not simply lending. It's not. We're not talking uh, overall about policy based loans. Uh, we're not talking about you know budget support in that regards. Which by the way, there's a whole other conversation that needs to take place in the IDB about PBLs uh, and budget support in that regards. Uh, that that's something that's been let's just say too loosey goosey uh, for decades. But you know that's something that you know we have a wide variety of products. You know that includes when we talked about last year's 21.6 billion. That includes infrastructure. That includes technical assistance. You know that includes this very wide menu. And I think we need to be more creative in that regards. Now, indeed, you know we are seeing countries in the region that you know their average of debt rate have you know has gone up into the 70s from the mid 50s and I think that that's of concern and that's something we're following closely I'm particularly concerned as is frankly Kristalina uh, about the the smaller islands uh, in the Caribbean and smaller countries that you know are going to have their growth impeded uh, particularly because they are too dependent on particular industries like tourism uh, etc and then we're working really closely on some of these uh, islands in the Caribbean and other smaller countries that are dependent on certain industries and by the way have had kind of the triple whammy right covid which of course, shuts down travel, which therefore shuts down tourism. Uh, and then, by the way, worst hurricane season in 50 years. So you've had, you know, a, a triple whammy in that regards. So, you know, for those countries in particular, we, are, we do need to find ways uh, to provide them uh, support, to provide them flexibility in vehicles. We're soon to launch uh, what we call the hurricane clause. We're actually the first uh, multilateral to do so. Hurricane clauses and contracts. Uh, for some of these countries in the Caribbean and Central America, that will provide them wider, mature, longer maturities uh, if there is a climate event uh, that takes place. Uh, but I think we need to go beyond that, right? And I think there is a, uh, a an effort along with uh, the fund and the World Bank uh, in order to see how we can provide some uh, relief to these to these countries. For the countries that are more have more multisectoral, et cetera, you know, we are really focused on recovering from COVID. Uh, we're doing everything we can to help them really pivot. So they can accelerate their economy, so they can grow again. Uh, you know, and at the end of the day, that's going to be the key. You know, not only have we been asking countries to spend more, but also because of COVID, asking them to halt consumption and production, uh, which has been obviously then led to what I just you know discussed that whole uh, triple sudden stop. So we need them to get them back in back path of growth. And what we can do there is really the vaccine effort, and that's why one of the things that we did in the hundred days. Uh, is something really that would have been unprecedented at the IDB were it not for the wonderful leadership team uh, that's there, the vice presidents uh, that have come to place and have broken silos. I said October 1st that we wanted to create teams that the bank worked as a group and we break silos. So you saw our vice president of countries and our vice president of sectors work together and identify, they literally identified and reprogrammed a billion dollars to dedicate solely to the vaccine effort. And we had to do so because at the end of the day, that's an investment that we make for countries to be able to pivot 
move past the current crisis and then start growing so they can create uh, more space uh, in that regards. Every uh, loan we make, every project we finance, uh, everything we do, we look very closely and we're very conscious in that regards. One of the reasons that I actually even selected uh, and the board approved uh, Richard Martinez, who was a former finance minister of Ecuador to become the vice president of countries was with this whole issue of debt and debt restructurings in mind. You know, IDB has never really played a role, does not have a formal mechanism for technical assistance or support with debt restructurings. And we actually created that. We actually created a team led by Richard. Uh, part of the reason I selected Richard is because he was not only recognized as finance minister of the year last year by Global Capital, but for good reason. You know, here's someone that earned the respect of, of the multilateral three IMF programs he negotiated. Obviously, IDB, World Bank, uh, had to negotiate with the Chinese uh, restructuring, had the good business of the Chinese and the United States, really wanted to respect, and a private bond restructuring uh, that took place with Ecuador to really try to bring them back, to actually successfully bring them back into the international financial system in that regards with challenges ahead and an election ahead, uh, but did really a tremendous job in that regards. And he's leading that effort, keeping in mind the challenges that countries are facing, particularly, as you mentioned, as their ratios go up. This is Chris Sands from the Canada side of things. In terms of adding to the capital that the bank has to work with, I'm sure Canada, like other countries, will be feeling the pinch for domestic. Are you getting a good response on uh, adding to the the capital reserves for the bank from from Canada, but also from the United States and others? So, look, I think there's generally there's a good consensus in the region uh, in regards to a capital increase. I think Canada has been a great partner. We've been working very closely uh, with Canada, uh, and they have obviously some priorities. I think that where you see a little bit of the resistance, but reluctance to a degree, is in Europe because obviously they have other priorities. And, you know, Europeans always tend to look at, perhaps with the exception of Spain, tend to look at Africa first uh, and that be their priority. So, you know, that conversation is taking place. But we're making a very strong case for it. And Canada has been great. You know, uh, Canada has been a leader, particularly gender uh, as well as climate issues. And in that regards, uh, you know, one of the things that we've, we've been doing in addition to, and we can talk about it with the priorities, is not only, uh, and this is also very helpful with the Europeans, uh, not only, you know, focusing on the digitalization side, the nearshoring or integration, uh, as we call it, particularly because the Europeans don't like the term nearshoring, um, the whole concept of small, medium-sized enterprises, but not just paying lip service, we're actually, and this is something we're looking to present as well in Barranquilla in, in March, you know, I think the IDB has, has been very good. Uh, in regards to climate uh, from a tr- in a transversal way. And obviously our ESG uh, standards are, you know, I, I would say best in class. However, you know, one of the things that we learned when we came in is for all the lip service that we provide on climate and gender, you know, we don't have a business line independent for both of those. On climate, we actually have to crutch on some of the global uh, funds in order to finance uh, climate projects, which are tedious, they take too long, uh, and they're complex and bureaucratic. Uh, we're actually looking to create our own vehicle to finance climate projects in the region. And there's a huge opportunity there, uh, whether it's with the diesel project in, in Colombia and the seven uh, Amazon countries there or elsewhere and, and in that regard. And in regards to gender, while every project has to, you know, essentially check a box uh, on gender, there's not a pipeline of business that's focused on gender. And there's so much we can do uh, in that regard. And Canada has been a particular leader uh, in that regard and working really closely on that. And we'll launch our own framework on gender. And just last week, you know, one of the things that I would like to replicate and scale, uh, we launched a pilot project along with Pepsi, uh, PepsiCo, the company, in Guatemala, Dominican Republic, and Ecuador, whereby, and this goes great with the whole integration uh, issue, uh, whereby we're helping female agricultural entrepreneurs, uh, particularly that are in the, in the field of, of uh, potatoes, so they can essentially create, uh, we can help them foment small, uh, medium-sized farms, 
uh, that they can then scale, uh, grow, and then at the end of that pipeline, you have PepsiCo, which obviously owns Frito, uh, that will purchase those potatoes from those female entrepreneurs. So these are things that we can scale in that regard. Uh, that's something that Canada has been a great leader in uh, across the board. Uh, and obviously, look, in the Caribbean, Central America, uh, they've also been great leaders. So I think from a Canada perspective, we, we, we have a great working relationship. Uh, they have an extraordinary uh, executive director, Ted Bob Ash, who is, who is, who is a former ambassador uh, in Colombia, uh, one of uh, someone of great standing, uh, and uh, and we're really lucky to have them and working really really well together. So uh, Canada is, is a leader in the IDB, and uh, we uh, and, and we look forward to working there. Regards to the United States, I think you know obviously we're going through a transition here, and obviously when uh, you know it just it depends, right? We have a, a new Secretary of Treasury, uh, and we look forward to making the case to Treasury as well. I think from a technical level, uh, Treasury has an idea of where, and obviously with the, the career staff at Treasury, uh, which is obviously very well-versed and very well-informed, has been following for a while, uh, they have idea probably of where they want to be at, but obviously that depends on you know, how quickly the new leadership can settle, which is why either we'd love to get a mandate in March or at the very latest uh, in, in September, but we're really pushing for March. Mauricio, I, I would love to come back to uh, an issue that you sure. raised a couple of times before we run out of time here, and that's nearshoring. And you talked a little bit about that in your answer to Chris just now. But to me, it seems as though, you know, despite all the problems, the region remains um, one that is full of opportunities as well. And in terms of nearshoring, I mean, we, we talk about it most commonly um, with regards to Mexico and Canada. But of course, there are many other countries in the region that could benefit from, uh, from this phenomenon that we're, we're seeing right now. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what you see as the IDB's role in that. That's a great question. Look, people say it's been my obsession. It's my obsession because it's very real. One of the other things that we've been doing that I'm very proud of in the, in the last 100 days, there's not a day that goes by that I have not talked to a CEO or executive at a major uh, U.S. company, at institutional investors, financial institutions, etc., who for a long time have really not seeing the IDB as, as a guide towards, you know, investment, et cetera, in the region. And there's an argument to be made, you know, that, is that really our role or not? Uh, I think it is, uh, because that's what, we have a whole office of integration. You know, we obviously as well have the American Business Dialogue, and there's been such excitement in the private sector about what we're doing. They actually have asked us to staff up the American Business Dialogue, which we're going to do, uh, which is going to be key as well for the Senate of the Americas coming up. Nearshoring is real. You know, I, I've seen at least two studies that show about two thirds of companies, of U.S. companies in China, have either are making plans or are considering moving uh, their operations. You know, I've I've had this argument with the Europeans because they they think nearshoring is some type of geopolitical uh, issue, and I say it's not. You know, the IDB is not out there advocating for you know nearshoring or, or instigating nearshoring, but nearshoring is happening. It's taking place because companies have realized that it's good for them to be closer to these markets. It's also, by the way, it's also good for the communities, it's good for the environment, it's good for a whole bunch of reasons. So since it's happening, my job is to ensure that as much of that relocation takes place in our 26 borrowing nations as possible, because nothing has a greater social impact, uh, a socioeconomic impact for people than job creation. And those companies go and they create jobs, and they're doing it. And it's become almost now this kind of buzz whereby I get calls. Just last week, I got a call from a major pharmaceutical company that they're going to move one uh, a major operation to a Central American country. Uh, you know, car companies from Asia. Uh, moving towards Uruguay, they call us up. The major, the, the chief investment officer of a major life insurance company or insurance company generally, uh, which wants to put a billion dollars more uh, into the region, relocated from elsewhere, put it into the region, uh, and asked us for what we see as opportunities, uh, etc. You know, we, we created this kind of buzz and momentum and race, and in the middle, 
in the next couple of weeks in mid-February, we're actually going to sign. You know, I'm, 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 I'm about action, and we're going to sign with about over two dozen of the biggest global companies an action plan where they're committing to not just talking about the region, et cetera, but they're committing to increasing investments in the regions because the opportunities are there. Now, granted, some countries are making it easier than others. Uh, in that regards, and, and you know, and that's good. That competition is good as well. You know, some countries are doing great jobs attracting that investment and creating the infrastructure and creating uh, the business climate uh, for those investments, and some some aren't. But you know, those success stories are going to want to be emulated, and I think that opportunity is there. So, what's our job? Also in Barranquilla is one of the priorities, and I could probably give you them the whole list at some point because I've given you so many priorities in Barranquilla, but there's really five. Is a nearshoring toolkit. We've actually launched a nearshoring toolkit. So when I was back when I was still in the U.S. government. I really wanted to do this whole Back to the Americas initiative because I could see this nearshoring kind of starting to develop, taking place, particularly after COVID. But we just don't have the information. And I remember I asked the Commerce Department, give us a comparative advantage of each country so that we can measure, you know, what where we need to be focused on and, and be matchmaking, et cetera. And there was, look, there was resistance for, for a host, host of reasons in the U.S. government for that regards. But uh, also, we couldn't just come up with the information. At the IDB, obviously, because we have a presence in all the 26 quality nations, and we know the ministries, and we have such a level of trust and knowledge there, like we came up with that information right away. And a study was done right away. And let me just leave you with this on this issue. If the region simply captured 10% of what the United States currently imports from China that the, the region already produces, so I'm not talking about creating a whole new business line, a whole new facility, et cetera, of projects that, that of, of, of in, industries and goods and widgets that are already uh, kind of cross-import, let's say, that both China and the region. If we just captured 10%, if the region captured 10% of that, that would be $70 billion worth of exports per year, additional exports per year for the region. Huge impact of job creation, et cetera. That excitement is there. People are seeing it. Our job is to really help guide that. I think the companies, the private sector is excited about what we're doing. They're excited we're working as a group. Look, it's part of the leadership team. You know, we announced uh, uh, in, in our leadership team, uh, you know, the, the, our, the executive vice president, who's number two, who, by the way, now is the highest ranking uh, uh, Latin American woman in the history of the IDB, uh, Reina Irene Mejia, who is a former CEO of Citibank in Central America. I, I mentioned Richard. Uh, I mentioned uh, Benigno Lopez, our vice president of sectors, who's the finance minister of Paraguay. Uh, we promoted our CFO, Gustavo Rosa, to be vice president of finance. But now when we have leadership meetings, we actually include uh, IDB Invest and IDB Lab. We really are looking, which by the way, had never in meetings been included as part of the leadership team because we really need to have a group effort. And that includes the private sector because the reality is it doesn't matter what we do, the growth that is needed in the region and those opportunities that exist have to be led by the private sector. And I think that if we leave that confidence and we bring that confidence to the private sector to help be good stewards, you know, good stewards of brands, good, good stewards of the region and, and, and of what we think, you know, kind of like as we see, look, as you know, institutional investors, they always look, they, they have, you know, essentially very... Uh, objective standards. You know, if you're an OECD country, you know, they, okay, that, 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 that checks a box and that, that allows you know, a whole bunch of cash to be made available for investments. If we can create our own kind of standard, our own kind of OECD-like standard that bringing that confidence to the region, we can promote a lot of investment and therefore job creation, which has all sorts of development impact. You know, we can also help bring it to underdeveloped areas, to areas with vulnerable populations. You know, obviously huge impact for the climate environment due to shorter distances, et cetera. By the way, investors see this. You know, I'm very proud. I'm very proud. And there's a host of reasons. But just last week, we uh, we issued our 10-year our sustainable bond, and we expected to raise about $2 billion with it. And we raised $4 billion. We doubled it. And we had demand for $5 billion. And it was the most successful 
bond offering in the history of the IDB, over 100 investors. Now granted, there's, there's good timing, there's good pricing, but investors are seeing what we're doing, we're talking to them, they're excited about the opportunity, and we had the best bond offering uh, as a result of that uh, uh, in the history of the IDB, and I think uh, there's a lot more to come. I'm sorry, sincerely sorry we're out of time, but the good news is we covered a lot of important issues in a short amount of time. Uh, Mauricio Claver Carone, thank you very much for joining us today. I know I speak for my colleagues when I, when I thank you for being here. Hey, thank you so much again for the invitation. I appreciate it. Well, we look forward. To, I understand you'll be back for a Wilson Center event in March, and we can continue thank this conversation, and we look forward to that then. Thanks again. So we hope you enjoyed this edition of America's 360 and that you'll choose to join us again soon. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz, Angela Robertson, and Mariana Sanchez Ramirez. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.